Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today we are celebrating Pride Month by reading works by LGBT plus authors. We hope to honour the beauty of their creative expression. The first author is Walter Whitman, one of the most influential poets in American history. Whitman was surprisingly open about his sexuality for the time period. His long-term partner was a man named Peter Doyle. Eris, a spirit record, by Walter Whitman. Who says that there are not angels or invisible spirits watching around us? The teeming regions of the air swarm with bodiless ghosts, bodiless to human sight because of their exceeding and too dazzling beauty. And there is one, childlike with helpless and unsteady movements, but a countenance of immortal bloom whose long lashed eyes droop downwards. The name of the shape is Di. When he comes near, the angels are silent and gaze upon him with pity and affection, and the fair eyes of the shape roll but fix upon no object while his lips move, but a plaintive tone only is heard. The speaking of a single name, wandering in the confines of earth or restlessly amid the streets of the beautiful land, goes die, earnestly calling on the one he loves. Wherefore is there no response, softly as the feathery leaf of the frailest flower, pure as the heart of flame, of beauty so lustrous that the sons of heaven themselves might well be drunken to gaze thereon, with fleecy robes that but half apparel a maddening whiteness and grace dwells Eris among the creatures beautiful, a chosen and cherished one. And Eris is the name called by the wandering angel, while no answer comes, and the love flies swiftly away with a look of sadness and displeasure. It had been years before that a maid and her betrothed lived in one of the pleasant places of earth. Their hearts clung to each other with the fondness of young life and all its dreamy passion. Each was simple and innocent. Mortality might not know a thing better than their love, or more sunny than their happiness. In the method of the rule of fate it was ordered that the maid should sicken, and be drawn nigh to the gates of death. Nigh, but not through them. Now to the young who love purely, high power commissions to each a gentle guardian who hovers around unseen day and night. The office of this spirit is to keep a sleepless watch and fill the heart of his charge with strange and mysterious and lovely thoughts. Over the maid was placed Di, and through her illness the unknown presence of the youth hung near continually. To the immortal, days, years, and centuries are the same. Erewhile a cloud was seen in heaven. The delicate ones bent their necks and shook as if a chill blast had swept by, and white robes were drawn around, shivering and terrified forms. An archangel with veiled cheeks cleaved the air. Silence spread through the hosts of the passing way who gazed in wonder and fear and as they gazed they saw a new companion of wondrous loveliness among them, a strange and 
timid creature who, were it not that pain must never enter those borders with innocence, would have been called unhappy. The angels gathered around the late-comer with caresses and kisses, and they smiled pleasantly with joy in each other's eyes. Then the archangel's voice was heard, and they who heard it knew that one still mightier spake his will therein. The child die, said he. A far reply sounded out in tones of trembling and apprehension. I am here. And the youth came forth from the distant confines, whether he had been in solitude. The placid look of peace no more illuminated his brow with silver light, and his unearthly beauty was as a choice statue enveloped in mist and smoke. O oh, weak and wicked spirit, said the archangel, thou hast been false to thy mission and thy master. The quivering limbs of Di felt weak and cold. He would have made the answer in agony, but at that moment he lifted his eyes and beheld the countenance of Eris, the late-comer. Love is potent, even in heaven, and subtle passion creeps into the hearts of the sons of beauty, who feel the delicious impulse and know that there is soft sadness sweeter than aught in the round of their pleasure eternal. When the youth saw Eris, he sprang forward with lightning swiftness to her side, but the late-comer turned away with aversion. The band of goodwill might not be between them because the wrongs done and the planting of despair in two happy human hearts. At the same moment, the myriads of interlinked spirits that range step by step from the throne of the uppermost, as the power of that light and presence which is unbearable even to the deathless must be tempered for the sight of any created thing, however lofty. We're conscious of emotion in the mind of God. Quicker than electric thought, the command was accomplished. The disobedient angel felt himself enveloped in a sudden cloud, impenetrably dark. The face of Eris gladdened and maddened him no more. He turned himself to and fro and stretched out his arms, but Though he knew the nearness of his companions, the light of heaven and the eyes of Eris were strangely sealed to him. The youth was blind forever. So a wandering angel sweeps through space with restless and unsteady movements, and the sound heard from his lips is the calling of a single name. But the love flies swiftly away in sadness and heeds him not. Onward and onward speeds the angel amid scenes of ineffable splendour, though to his sight the splendour is darkness. But there is one scene that rests before him always. It is of a low, brown dwelling among the children of men, and in an inner room a couch, whereon lies a young maid whose cheeks rival the frailness and paleness of foam. Nearby is a youth, and the filmy eyes of the girls are bent upon him in fondness. What dim shape hovers overhead? He is invisible to mortals, but, oh, well may the blind spirit, by the token of throbs of guilty and fiery love beating through him, know that hovering form. Thus forward, by such fiery love, the shape dared transcend his duty. Again the youth looked upon the couch and beheld a lifeless corpse. This is the picture upon the vision of Dai, his brethren of the bands of light, 
as they meet him in his journeys, pause a while for pity. Yet never do the pangs of their sympathy, the only pangs known to those sinless creatures, or arms thrown softly around him, or kisses on his brow, efface the pale lineaments of the sick girl, the dead. In the portals of heaven stands Eris, oft peering into the outer distance, nor of the millions of winged messengers that hourly come and go does one enter there whose features are not earnestly scanned by the watcher. And the fond joy resides in her soul that the time is nigh at hand, for a thread yet binds the angel down to the old abode, and until the breaking of that bond, Eris keeps vigil in the portals of heaven. The limit of the watch comes soon, on earth a toil-worn man has returned from distant travel and lays him down, weary and faint at heart, on a floor amidst the ruins of that low brown dwelling. The slight echo is heard of moans coming from the breast of one who yearns to die. Life and rosy light and the pleasant things of nature and the voice and sight of his fellows and the glory of thought, the sun, the flowers the glittering stars, the soft breeze have no joy for him, and the coffin and the cold earth have no horror. They are a path to the unforgotten. Thus the tale is told in heaven, how the pure love of two human beings is a sacred thing, which the immortals themselves must not dare to cross. In pity to the disobedient angel he is blind, that he may not gaze ceaselessly on one who returns his love with displeasure. And haply dies the spirit of the destiny of those whose selfishness would seek to mar the peace of gentle hearts by their own unreturned and unhallowed passion. We move on to Virginia Woolf. She was a modernist writer who is famous for her stream-of-consciousness style of writing. She had two long-term partners, Leonard Woolf and Vita Sackville-West. She maintained both of these relationships until her death. The String Quartet by Virginia Woolf Well, here we are. And if you cast your eye over the room, you will see that tubes and trams and omnibuses, private carriages, not a few, even, if I venture to believe, land us with bays in them, have been busy at it, weaving threads from one end of London to the other. Yet I begin to have my doubts. If indeed it's true, as they are saying, that Regent Street is up, and the treaty signed, and the weather not cold for the time of year, and even at that rent not a flat to be had, and the worst of influenza its after-effects. If I bethink me of having forgotten to write about the leak in the larder, and left my glove in the train, if the ties of blood require me leaning forward to accept cordially the hand which is perhaps offered hesitatingly seven years since we last met, the last time in Venice... And where are you living now? Well, the late afternoon suits me best, though if it weren't asking too much, but I knew you at once. Still, the war made a break. If the mind's shot through by such little arrows, and, for human society compels it, no sooner is one launched than another pressed forward. If this engenders heat, and in addition they've turned on the electric lights. If saying one thing does in so many cases leave behind it a need to improve and revise, stirring besides regrets, pleasures, vanities and desires, 
If it's all the facts, I mean, and the hats and fur boas and gentlemen's swallow-tailed coats and pearl tie-pins that come to the surface, what chance is there of what it becomes every minute more difficult to say why, in spite of everything, I sit here believing I can't now say what or even remember the last time it happened? Did you see the procession? The king looked cold. No, no, but what was it? She's bought a house at Malmesbury. How lucky to find one. On the contrary, it seems to me pretty sure that she, whoever she may be, is damned, since it's all a matter of flats and hats and seagulls, or so it seems to be of a hundred people sitting here, well-dressed, walled in, furred, replete, not that I can boast, since I too sit passive on a gilt chair, only turning the earth above a buried memory, as we all do, for there are signs, if I'm not mistaken, that we're all recalling something, furtively seeking something. Why fidget? Why so anxious about the sit of the cloaks and gloves, whether to button or unbutton, then watch that elderly face against the dark canvas a moment ago urbane and flushed, now taciturn and sad, as if in shadow. Was it the sound of the second violin tuning in the anteroom? Here they come, four black figures carrying instruments and seat themselves facing the white squares under the downpour of light, rest the tips of their bows on the music stand. With a simultaneous movement, lift them, lightly poise them, and, looking across at the player opposite, the first violin counts. One, two, three. Flourish, spring, burgeon, burst. The pear tree on top of the mountain, fountain jets, drop, descend. But the waters of the Rhone flow swift and deep, race under the arches and sweep the trailing water leaves, washing shadows out of the silver fish, the spotted fish rushing down by the swift waters, now swept into an eddy where, it's difficult this, conglomeration of fish all in a pool, leaping, splashing, scraping, sharp fins and such a boil of current that the yellow pebbles are churned round and round, round and round, free now, rushing downwards or even somehow ascending in exquisite spirals into the air, curled like thin shavings from under a plane, up and up. How lovely, Goodness is in those who, stepping lightly, go smiling through the world. Also in jolly old fishwives squatting under arches. Oh, seen old women, how deeply they laugh and shake and rollick when they walk from side to side. That's an early Mozart, of course. But the tune, like all his tunes, makes one despair. I mean, hope. What do I mean? That's the worst of music. I want to dance, laugh, eat pink cakes, yellow cakes, drink thin, sharp wine, or an indecent story. Now I could relish that. The older one grows, the more one likes indecency. Hall. <laughs> I'm laughing. What at? You said nothing, nor did the old gentleman opposite. But suppose... Suppose... Oh, oh, hush! The melancholy river bears us on. When the moon comes through the trailing willow boughs, I see your face. I hear your voice and the bird singing as we pass the osier bed. What are you whispering? Sorrow, joy, 
joy, woven together like reeds in the moonlight, woven together, inextricably commingled, bound in pain and strewn in sorrow. Crash! The boat sinks, rising, the figures ascend, but now leaf-thin, tapering to a dusky wraith, which, fiery-tipped, draws its twofold passion from my heart. For me, it sings, unseals my sorrow, thaws compassion, floods with love and a sunless world, nor ceasing abates its tenderness, but deftly cleft ones unify, soar, sob, sink to the rest, sorrow and joy. Why then grieve? Ask what? Remain unsatisfied. I say all's been settled. Yes, laid to rest under a coverlet of rose leaves, falling, falling. But they cease. One rose leaf falling from an enormous height, like a little parachute dropped from an invisible balloon, turns, flutters waveringly. It won't reach us. No, no, I notice nothing. That's the worst of music, those, these silly dreams. The second violin was late, you say? Oh, there's old Mrs. Monroe, feeling her way out blinder every year. Poor woman, on this slippery floor. Eyeless, old age, grey-headed sphinx. There she stands on the pavement, beckoning so sternly the red omnibus. How lovely! How well they play! How... How, how? The tongue is but a clapper, simplicity itself. The feathers in the hat next to me are bright and pleasing as a child's rattle. The leaf on the plane tree flashes green through the chink in the curtains. Very strange, very exciting. How, a how, how? Hush! These are the lovers on the grass. If, madam, you will take my hand, sir, I would trust you with my heart. Moreover, we have left our bodies in the banqueting hall. Those on the turf are the shadows of our souls. Then these are the embers of our souls. The lemons nod assent. The swan pushes from the bank and floats dreaming into midstream. But to return, he followed me down the corridor, and as we turned the corner, he trod on the lace of my petticoat. What could I do but cry and stop to finger it? At which he drew his sword, made passes as if he was stabbing something to death, and cried, Mad! 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 Whereupon I screamed, and the prince, who was writing it in a large vellum book in the oriel window, came out in his velvet skull-cap and furred slippers, snatched a rapier from the wall, the King of Spain's gift, you know, on which I escaped, flinging on his cloak to hide the ravage of my skirt, to hide, but listen, the horns. The gentleman replies so fast to the lady, and she runs up the scale with such witty exchange of compliment, now culminating in a sob of passion, that the words are indistinguishable, though the meaning is plain enough. Love, laughter, flight, pursuit. Celestial bliss, all floated out on the gayest ripple of tender endearment, until the sound of the silver horns at each far distant gradually sounds more and more distinctly, as if sensuals were saluting the dawn or proclaiming ominously the escape of the lovers. The green garden, 
moonlit pool, lemons, lovers and fish are all dissolved in the opal sky, across which, as the horns are joined by trumpets and supported by clarions, there rise white arches firmly planted on marble pillars. Tramp and trumpeting, clang and clangor, firm establishment, vast foundations, march of myriads, confusion and chaos trod to earth. But this city to which we travel has neither stone nor marble, hangs enduring, stands unshakable, nor does a face, nor does a flag greet or welcome. Leave then to perish your hope, droop in the desert, my joy, naked advance, bare are the pillars, auspicious to none. Casting no shade, resplendent, severe, back then I fall, eager no more, desiring only to go, find the street, mark the buildings, greet the apple-woman, say to the maid who opens the door, a starry night, good night, good night, you go this way? Alas, I go that. Most people are familiar with Oscar Wilde. Funnily enough, he and Whitman were contemporaries and met in person. He was a multi-talented individual who turned his hand to many forms of creativity. Unfortunately, he is also famous for the cruel treatment he received, and a very public trial that outed him as a homosexual man. On the sale by auction of Keats' Love Letters by Oscar Wilde These are the letters which Endymion wrote, to one he loves in secret and apart. And now the brawlers of the auction mart bargain and bid for each poor blotted note. Aye, for each separate pulse of passion quote the merchant's price. I think they love not art who break the crystal of a poet's heart. That small and sickly eyes may glare and gloat. Is it not said that many years ago in the far eastern town some soldiers ran with torches through the midnight and began to wrangle for mean raiment and to throw dice for the garments of a wretched man not knowing the god's wonder or his woe? Our final author is Angelina Weld Grimk. She was the first woman of colour to have a play publicly performed. She was also very involved in the Harlem Renaissance, and her work often tackled topics that were challenging to the mainstream audience. While we do not know the names of her partners, her writing revealed her love and longing for women. El Beso by Angelina Weld Grimk Twilight and you, quiet, the stars, snare of the shine of your teeth, your provocative laughter. The gloom of your hair, lure of you, eye and lip. Yearning, yearning, languor, surrender, your mouth and madness, madness, tremulous, breathless, flaming, the space of a sigh, then awakening, remembrance, pain, regret, your sobbing, and again, quiet, the stars, twilight, and you. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page or Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.